0: Welcome to this very special In Conversation episode of Shameless with the one and only Michelle Andrews. Yep, it's a pretty weird one. For the next two weeks, we have turned the tables a little bit and decided to interview each other to coincide with the launch of our first book, The Space Between. In the book, we delve into so many of our own personal experiences and so given you guys have been asking us to do this for so long, We decided to flesh out our essays and our stories a little bit more by chatting to each other in the way we know best. This week, I interview Michelle. Next week, she will interview me. I won't even bother introducing Mish or even give you much of a spiel about what we talk about in this chat because I just want it to flow in the way that it happened. But I will say this. This conversation between Mish and I was one of the hardest we have ever had. Easily the hardest we've ever had. But what Mish says particularly... In the second half of this chat, uh, some of the most powerful and generous things she's ever shared, and I really can't wait for you to hear them. So without further ado, here is Mish. Michelle Elizabeth fine and <laughs> Andrews, welcome to Shameless In Conversation. We are so excited to have you here. Oh,
1: fuck <laughs> off. This is, this is weird. We weren't actually planning this for very long. I think we only came up with this idea about two weeks ago because that's how we operate, fast and loose. Fast and loose, you're right. I think people have been asking us for some time to interview each other and
0: I'd never really thought about it as a concept because we have been interviewed a bunch about this book together. But I do think it's a very different thing to hear about you, just you know, in isolation, because I think when we're interviewed together, it's often in the context of work and stuff like mm. that, and our experiences
1: together rather than individually. So how are you feeling? I feel so nervous. Now I'm realizing how every In Convo guest probably feels when like we're gearing <laughs> up and being like, okay, so like, how are you doing? I feel so nervous that I'm going to like trip over my words, despite the fact I've done this a million different times. Well, the thing is, this is the first one we're recording. So you're interviewing me after this. So
0: I feel very <laughs> smug right now, like in the driver's seat, ready I to go. you so much. I am not going to ask you what you are reading, watching or listening to, because I think that we do that all the time. Time and it might be a bit repetitive. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go straight to our second question, which
1: is what were you like as a kid? What was I like as a kid? I was the sick kid. I have chronic asthma, which is such a dorky thing, I feel, to admit about yourself. But when I was a little child, my asthma was so, so bad. Basically, my memories of being between the age of about three and ten is being in ambulances because the school nurse had to call one again for me, being the wheezy, very, very skinny child. Apart from that, I was obsessed with netball. I think before the media and before I discovered writing, I was just obsessive about competitive sport and I was the captain of the netball team and ferociously competitive and I used to pore over the analytics and the statistics from last week's game and I just remember my parents were as invested in it as I was. They weren't like crazy netball parents, I know that's such a trope, but they were very, very keen for us to pursue our passions. For my sisters and I, that was netball.
0: What I find interesting is one of the major threads of your life right now is your relationship with your sisters. And when I asked what you were like as a kid, your relationship with them didn't come up initially.
1: Mm. My sisters and my brother, to be honest, I feel sorry for Tom. I feel like Tom always gets dropped <laughs> off because he's the only boy that was, in the That was my bad too. I am sorry, Tom. <laughs> sorry, Tom. My memories of my sisters growing up was that we argued a lot and we were hyper competitive with each other. It's so funny because when I started seeing a psychologist – One of her first observations was how competitive my family was between each other in that my sisters and I used to one up each other at school and one up each other at netball and who got into the state team that year and who missed out, which feels and seems like the grossest environment to grow up in. I'm sure my parents didn't foster that at all, but we were super, super competitive. I think we didn't actually truly get along and truly discover that we were really best friends. Until we found different passions and different hobbies and we kind of moved away from the stuff we were doing as kids. But the bond I have now with my sisters is just so incredibly strong and beautiful and it's one of my favorite things about life. It's so funny. I remember my sister saying very
0: openly that it took until I turned 16 and was less of a brat for us to actually get along. But I think that a lot of sister relationships are like that. Like, not only do you need to find different passions
1: and different hobbies, but you also need to kind of come out of that very intense puberty. Do you know one of my clearest memories from teenagerdom is when I was getting ready in the bathroom and I was in a sports bra and Evelyn came in and pointed out that I had back acne? <laughs> she started singing <laughs> she turned baby got back into baby got back knee and started singing that to me so i forcibly pushed her into the bathtub and like really badly hurt her and that's one of the standout memories. I also remember like having physical fist fights with my sister Claire on the flight of the stairs because one person was wearing the other's netball shorts. So yeah it definitely took us until I think we were in our 20s to discover how close we really were. I think you kind of touched on this when
0: you were talking about your kind of obsessiveness about netball but I kind of want to know if you could see parallels between who you were as a kid and as a teenager and who you are now.
1: I mean, sometimes when I talk about this, I don't even like myself and that's why I find it weird to talk you about mean? publicly because I know some people won't like this trait. Well, I know that for women, and I touch on this in the book as well, I know that for women, it's not always likable to be really determined and to be really passionate. And I think those are two words that describe me to a T. I've always had something that I'm in love with and that I commit everything to and that brings me a lot of fulfilment. And so as much as I know that that's true for me, every time I say it, whether it's writing it in the book or it's saying to you now, I think in my head, oh my God, there's going to be a whole bunch of listeners who don't like me for that, who would prefer for me to be more gracious or to be more ladylike, which I know is such a gross thing to admit on a feminist podcast. Of course, we are both feminists, but that's the truth that even now at 26, I know that admitting that I am. Tenacious about pursuing what I care about and what I'm passionate about will make people kind of roll their eyes at me. I think we're coming a bit of a way, but I think there's something about
0: competitiveness that people still don't like in women. I think that ambition, I think we've sexied ambition up, but Mm. I don't think we've sexied competitiveness up, even if you're competing against yourself, as wanky as that sounds.
1: Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. And I think on the definition of competitive, like even if it's a board game, I want to win it. I want to be good at things. I want to do better than I did last week. Like it's been a real hurdle for me to jump over with this podcast in that if the podcast we just recorded is not better than the week before, that legitimately troubles me. Like I will think about that all day. It will go up on a Monday and I'll spend the whole day stressing about the little chinks in this week's episode that were not as strong as last week's. In my head, we should always be improving, always doing better, always going in this upward trajectory. And that's great. Like I think on one hand, my tenaciousness is good in that it means that I work hard and sometimes I reap the benefits of that hard work. But it also means that I am very, very rarely totally fulfilled. Like the pockets of the year where I feel content and I feel satisfied and I feel like we can just kind of float along for a little bit are so few and far between and they're very fleeting. But I think that's something I need to come to terms with because there's always going to be a ceiling and you can't always beat yourself from the week before. And on top of that, I have a tendency to look back on things that I did three months ago with rose-colored glasses and think I was so much better at my job then than what I am right now. And that's just not the case. There's a lot I want to talk to you about right now. And I think the hardest part about prepping for this interview (laughs) is kind of...
0: Working out, you can kind of only pick two or three main things to actually have a conversation about. Because if Mm. I was to interview you about your whole life, I feel like I know so much that we could talk for days. But Mm. the thing that I really do want to talk to you about is your parent separation when you turned 21. Having known you for a really long time now, I think it really genuinely feels like this event changed the shape of your life because it changed the shape of your family's life so much and I know how much your family means to you in the book you write that the decline of your parents marriage felt a lot like grief that you all grieving what your family once looked like what
1: did that grief look like I think the grief just felt really sharp like I'm trying to kind of map it out and visualize it in my head but I think when you are blindsided by your family falling apart. And I was blindsided and I said that in the book. I I truly, truly did not see it coming and nor did many of the people around me and even my siblings see that separation coming. So I think I felt like I had been blindsided and I think for a long time after the separation and after dad moved out of home, I was kind of grappling with this idea that perhaps my reality And the true reality were two completely different things. Like I had this view on my life and I had this view on my family that was so at odds with how things actually were. And it did feel like a trick mirror. I think when I had heard of other families splitting or I had heard of other parents breaking up, I'd always thought, well, the issues must have been really apparent or there must have been something very obviously broken to the people on the periphery. And that was not the case for me. It just wasn't the case at all. And I think I've always considered myself to be an emotionally perceptive person. Yes, I have so many flaws. There are so many things I need to work on, but I would hope- that <laughs> above... you don't need to qualify that by saying that there is one thing that you're not bad at. But I, But I would hope, and I have always considered myself to be someone who is empathetic and who cares how other people think and feel and who takes time to try and read how they're doing. And I've always thought that I'm pretty good at that. So to have two of the people who are closer to me than anyone else in the world go through this really cataclysmic relationship breakdown, completely changed my perception of the world and changed my perception of myself. And It's not something that I'd really ever heard spoken about. I think it's probably quite rare that people have their parents split up when they are in their 20s and you've already gone through decades of really wonderful family times and you're thinking of moving out and you're thinking of starting your own relationships and your own adult life now. But I'd never read anything that looked into that. And as someone who went through it, it's an incredibly isolating time because the difference with having your parents break up when you're a child or a teenager and clarification, I'm not saying those are any less traumatic. I'm just saying it's a different kind of trauma is different to when you're an adult, because when you're an adult, you're not treated like a child anymore. You're not kept apart from all the messiness. You're kind of considered old enough and mature enough to deal with whatever's going on. Sometimes you are lent on for advice and insights and help. And as much as I loved at times being a lighthouse for both of my parents, it was also incredibly confronting. Like I learned things about my own life and about my own childhood and about my own existence that with hindsight, I probably didn't want to know. And my siblings are the same. That's not to say that like I I begrudge my parents for any of it, because I think anyone who's going through something that huge and that colossal is going to try and reach out to the people around them for love and support. So I look back now and I know that I am closer to both my mom and my dad than I would have been if they hadn't have split, because I think as hard and as messy and as gross as that period was when I was 21, it forced me to get to know my parents as people, not just as my parents. And I saw sides of them and aspects of their personality and their vulnerabilities and their fallibilities that made me love them so much more. And I think now, like, as you said, family is such a huge priority for me. And it is like family is the number one thing in my life. In lockdown, that's been the one thing I'm struggling with. I just want to have a brunch or have a footy game or anything with my family. I adore my friends. I adore you. I would love to go to a bar and have drinks. But the one thing I want is to sit down with my family, because I think going through that experience where we were torn in half, Made us value each other as individuals so, so, so much more. One thing that you do
0: touch on in that essay is the stat that people throw around about divorce, you know, one in two marriages end in divorce, and the stories you try to tell yourself about that fact that, well, I shouldn't really be so shaken by this if it's so common. What's that like? Did you feel any sense of like confusion or embarrassment or shame thinking that, like, if this is a common experience, I shouldn't be feeling the things that I am?
1: Yeah, for sure. And I think for so long, I didn't let myself feel or I wasn't honest with myself about how I was feeling because I felt like I wasn't entitled to feel that way. Like this is such a common experience. Surely it can't be that earth shattering to go through it but it was. And I, at the same time, I acknowledge that it might not be that way for everyone. I've got friends whose parents divorced and they were elated upon hearing that news because for them, it meant some reprieve from clearly what was broken in the household and what was obviously not working. For me, it wasn't that. And I think I can only be honest with how I experienced it. And this is only my story. And the story was that I was completely shattered completely shattered by it. But I know now, five years on, looking at who my parents are as people and looking at how strong our bonds are and how much we adore and love each other, it was the right thing. Like I never saw it coming. And if you had told me at 20 years old that this would be where I am at 26 and my parents don't speak, I would have thought that's awful and I'll never be okay with that. But in reality, I I am okay with that. I think the thing about doing this
0: interview with you is that, and maybe you might feel the same, is that I could be projecting through so many of these, questions, right? <laughs> like coming up with all these connections and being like, is this true? But hear me out on this one. I think your parents divorced, your anxiety diagnosis, it all kind of came together at a very similar time. And it was about that time that I came into your life and mm. we started working together. And when I met you at work, it's funny because the the words I have down here is you were a work obsessive <laughs> and lucky for me, you've already put that word out here in this conversation, but work mm. was everything to you. And I want to know if you think any part of you wanted to pour all your energy into your career because it was something you seemed to have total control over at that time in your life.
1: Yeah, I think so. I think as well, I I struggled a lot. I didn't even touch on this in the book, I don't think, but I did struggle with eating a lot as well around that time in my life when I started at Mamma Mia and I was kind of dealing with my parents' separation. I think because I had been blindsided in more ways than one and because I was grappling with this new normal I did want to anchor myself to anything that I could control and I think that was the one of the most difficult elements of going into university as well. Like I I was plucked out of high school, placed in this huge institution where I felt like an absolute ghost. I felt completely irrelevant, completely unseen, completely lost, to be honest, at university. Like a number, right? I I hated it. I have such bad memories of university and I wish it Mm, wasn't the case because I know for some people it was so enjoyable and so fun (laughs) and so lovely. I did not feel that. I felt Depressed most of the time I was in uni and really anxious and just really fucking confused about who I was and where I was going and what the fuck I was going to do with my life. And so, yeah, I think once I got that internship at Mamma Mia, I was hellbent on making it into a career or making it into a job because I couldn't grapple with letting myself down. All right, I never want to not give something everything I've got and have it not come to fruition and always wonder. And work for me at that time was really just the one constant that I had, that I'd rock up to work. I would give it my all. I would stay as late as they needed me to. I would do as much work as physically possible in that time frame. I would not take lunch breaks. I would prove myself to these people because my my self-worth is so wrapped up in work. And that can be quite a dangerous way to live, particularly now when our work and ourselves and our personalities and our public personas are all kind of meshed in this weird one gray blob and they're impossible to separate from each other. But it's the truth. Like, I, I do consider myself worthy if I'm doing well at work, and I do consider myself not worthy if I'm struggling at work. So, yeah, I think I'm, I'm something of a workaholic, but I actually don't know if that's a bad thing. Like, I, I also consider myself lucky to be in a line of work and a career where I'm I really love it like I genuinely love what we do I love writing I love telling stories I love interviewing people connecting with other people so as much as it kind of like rattles my life or throws the balance off course it's also something I derive a lot of joy from well maybe that answers my next question but I still want to tease
0: it out a little bit because it's funny that in so many of the essays we write about work in this book We draw similar conclusions in almost all of them, which is work isn't everything. Mm. Other stuff is so much more important. I mean, I'm going to quote you back to you.
1: Oh no, You wrote,
0: (laughs) most of those things, the great things, the best things exist outside of my career. And yet knowing you and knowing just how you answered that question and knowing how much we work, I know that most of your energy still goes into your job. So why Mm. pour so much of yourself into it when you can recognize that it's not everything?
1: Mm. Well, one of the- <laughs> <laughs> fuck, I'm such a fraud. One of the reasons to be blunt is that my mind is not healthy and not happy when I am idle. So I try to pack my days full with as much as I can possibly muster. Not just work, but if I'm not working, I wanna be out with friends or I wanna be at my mum's house with all my siblings or I wanna be at brunch and coffee with my dad. My worst day is staying at home, and Mitch will tell you this because it kills him every single weekend. My worst day is staying at home and watching TV all day and not doing anything because when that happens, my brain, which is an anxious one, will catastrophize, will stress, will find something to be anxious about. But when I'm busy, I'm happy. I love being busy. I love packing my schedule full of stuff. My worst nightmare is taking a holiday or a break from work and not having anything to do in that time. I know it frustrates you as well, because I'm probably like- Read a comp- fucking book. <laughs> I'm probably compelling you to work in times that you don't want to work either. But yeah, I, I just love doing stuff and I love seeing people and being around energy and doing high energy things. I don't like- sitting on the couch and binging a whole bunch of TV shows because I'll sit there the entire time and think about all the things I could be doing or think about all the reasons I'm annoying or people don't like me or all this like ridiculous bullshit that my anxious mind tries to convince me so as much as my psychologist won't love to hear it yes I do pack my day full with a lot of stuff because it is the best way for me to manage my anxiety at the moment
0: I mean you're playing right into my hands, but I think that we have worked together <laughs> for
1: so long here, you would know how I was going to structure this conversation anyway. Oh I love that because-, because you're doing these questions, you're probably like, so she'll give me this answer. She'll say anxiety and I'll be like, well, great, I was trying great. to write them in a way where I didn't know what you were going to answer. And I was trying to, I mean, I tried to have a few
0: gotcha moments there and I tried to got you then, but you didn't take it. You didn't take the bait. <laughs> One of my favorite essays of yours, and I think it's an idea and a conversation that that existed for a long time before you actually pen this down was the space between my mental illness and my personality mm. where you speak a lot about the fact that sometimes it's really hard to tell what parts of you are you and what parts of you are your illness mm. what did
1: you want to explore in that essay I mean what message did you want to get across I think I wanted to accept myself for even the parts that I don't yet understand I've Looking back, probably had panic attacks and had anxiety since I was at least a teenager, possibly even before then. For those who haven't read the book, I, I explore a story from my very early childhood where my little brother, Tom, is a toddler. And I remember that day, even now, 20 years on, with such crippling fear that Tom, while he was at the park, was going to fall into the lake and drown. And I remember that story now because I still remember the fear that I had. And I remember the anxiety that I had in that moment. And I think, well, if I remember the fear, if it was so potent as a little kid then, is that healthy? Like, is, it, is that normal? Is that part of me? Or have I always had an anxiety disorder that I've always needed to manage? Or am I just an anxious person who is prone to feelings of stress and apprehension? I still don't know. I, I speak about it with my psychologist all the time and she doesn't really like putting labels on things. She doesn't love affixing generalized anxiety disorder to one set of behaviors and Michelle's anxious personality to another. I think they're just so enmeshed. I also think it's important to acknowledge the positive sides of my anxious personality. Like I, I think I am a caring person and I am a really loving affectionate person and you know this Sarah because I tell people I love them a million trillion times every single day but I don't think I would be that way if I wasn't an anxious personality type and I don't think I would be quite as empathetic towards other people if I wasn't anxious I think my anxiety makes me worry but that worry makes me care about things not just about myself things outside myself too so if I'm anxious that something's going to happen to my family tomorrow, I will tell them everything I love about them today. Like I tell Mitch, every single day, what I love about him. Every day before we go to bed, I'll give him compliments and tell him what I love about him. Probably because in my head, date my me. Anxious- <laughs> I don't need to tell you. You know what I love about you. <laughs> every day, though, my mind tricks me that something's going to happen to him tomorrow. Or say, I'm going to go to sleep and not wake up. The intrusion of really negative, catastrophic thoughts is something that people with anxiety don't often talk about. But it's it hits you like random. Like I have every single day an intrusive thought that Mitch might die today or I'm going to get in this car and I'm going to be hit by another car. And that's something that people without the illness don't know about and they don't grapple with that. But people with the illness probably experience all those things and want to put out love and compassion and empathy in the world because they know how it feels to live afraid. I want to go back to something you
0: said in the middle of that answer because it made me think when you said I don't know if I would have this much empathy if I wasn't anxious do you think any part of that though is selling yourself short like making the assumption that this is not innate to you I mean we could go around in circles because there's there's anxiety (laughs) innate in you right but but isn't that selling you short because don't you think your empathy is innate in you anyway and I think that that you would have it regardless of any label attributed to you
1: I mean maybe I think I think what I was getting at there is with anxiety, you're always operating on the worst case scenario. You're always catastrophizing and you're always thinking of what could happen, like the 0.0001 percent And because you're thinking that way and your mind is geared that way, you hopefully treat people that way as well. I mean, I do think I'm a compassionate person, but I, I can't pull the anxiety out of myself and see who I'd be without it. All I know is, is that with it, there are lots of negatives and there are lots of dark areas. And I really hope that essay explored those enough because it should not be underestimated how debilitating an anxiety disorder or depression can be. But there's also some positives and there are some aspects, even of my illness, that I have grown to appreciate for what they are. Might seem a bit random, (laughs) but
0: (laughs) I want to ask you about confidence with Mm. this in mind, right? Because it's an interesting experience you're describing, the experience of having an anxiety disorder. When your job starts to become more and more public and every piece of work you put out becomes more and more public, Mm. do you feel more or less confident in yourself and who you are the bigger the podcast has become?
1: Mm, That is such a good question. I wish I put that down for your interview and now I can't steal it. (laughs) You're welcome. Fuck. Am I more confident or less confident now? I think me even deliberating the answer is probably the answer. I think I'm I'm less sure of myself now than what I was at the beginning. But I also think that's okay. Like I think it's good to be less sure of myself and not not less confident, but maybe less single-minded because I would hope that I am more thoughtful about what I say and how I say it now I worry about our audience size of course like I worry I think my biggest fear is ever offending someone or making someone feel like the podcast doesn't recognize them or isn't for them or doesn't create a safe space for them so I certainly am riddled with more doubt every week like we've spoken about this before but Monday morning is probably the most anxious time of my entire week it's when I'm most prone to a panic attack or like a teary phone call to you Zara because i'm i'm stressed like i i get stressed that i'm going to say the wrong thing and i get stressed sometimes that i'll say something and people will intentionally take it out of context i think that's been a big thing for me but it's also the onus is on me to provide the context and the onus is on me to be good at my job and to communicate in a way that makes people feel seen and heard so as much as it makes me kind of like overthink things and it makes me sometimes nervous to get on the microphone when I probably wasn't in those early days in the long run it's probably the best for everyone because I would hate to be cocky or overly confident and get on the microphone every week and not consider all the shades of gray about what I'm about to speak about yeah I think that's fair I think that's a good answer do you agree agree? are you more Uh, or less confident
0: less for sure absolutely less but I think that's a good thing I think you're absolutely right Coming up after the break, Mish talks about the last essay of the book for the first and only time. But first, a word from today's sponsor. Just a quick content note before we jump into this second half of the conversation. This conversation will cover issues around sexual assault and may be triggering for some listeners. The next thing I want to ask you is not going to be an easy line of conversation at all, but I know it's something that you want to talk about only here. Like This is the only place that you kind of want to have this conversation, and it is about the last essay in the book. For those who haven't read the last essay of the book, it is easily the most powerful piece you've ever written. In it, you write about your experience of being sexually assaulted seven years ago by someone you knew, a friend of a friend, and... You have shared so much of yourself with the world and our community in the past. I mean, the fact that people will come to this episode and not learn about your anxiety or your parents' separation for the first time is a testament to how much you are willing to share with people. But this was always a thing you were never going to share. Like this was the story that was always going to be just yours. This was the thing that you were always going to hold closest to you. And I was pretty stunned the day you told me that you had decided to write this story down and share it with the world in our book. So I guess the first thing I want to know is why now? Like what changed?
1: I think I've done so much work, first of all. It's not like this happened to me seven years ago and I twiddled my thumbs for seven years and then woke up one day and decided I was going to finally talk about it. I went to – I'm still seeing a psychologist actually – but I was going to a psychologist every week and then every month and then every six weeks and I'd been doing that for – almost three years before I sat down to write this essay. I had spoken to lots of women about it. I think in the early days, and I say this in the essay, I told my sisters first. They knew in the weeks after it happened. I told my best friends from high school in a car after getting frozen yogurt and eating hamburgers that were disgusting. I told them in my car in the middle of winter. I told you at a Thai restaurant in 2018 And I told Mitch on our second or third date in the back of his car. And I think as I told more people the story and I gathered the confidence to kind of speak about it and use my words and cry through it, and I cried through it, I think, with every single one of you, I realized that the more I speak about it, the less power it has over me. And I think for me, it was like, this is something that happened to me when I was 18 and it happened for 10 or 20 minutes and it had wrapped tentacles around my entire body for years and that's so weird to admit like it's so weird to think that 10 or 20 minutes of trauma can asphyxiate you like that for years and make you feel shame and make you feel stupid and make you feel So little, you are almost nothing. But speaking about it and opening up to various people and sometimes hearing from women and some of my friends that, yes, that happened to them too, made me realise that I kind of need to let this story go. I'm so fine with it now. Like, I know I'm upset about it now because, of course, I'm upset and, like, I'm thinking about what my family's going to think and, like if Mitch is worried about me in the next room, because I know he'll be listening. But I am fine with it. Like I worked through it. My psychologist was so helpful in making me do things. Like I wrote him a letter and then I burnt it. And I screamed at him metaphorically, like in my bedroom, into my pillow. And I, I did mindfulness and I got into the gym and I started running and I started exercising and getting my energy out. And I started working through it and I've been working through it for so many years now that I feel like I need to do something positive and powerful that story because one in five women are sexually assaulted in their lives. And I know that so many of those women do the same thing I did, which is not report it. And I don't want those women to feel shameful about that. Like I want those women to feel seen and to know that if you were raped by someone, And you didn't go to the police. That is not a reflection of who you are as a person. That is a reflection of the structures within which you live. And I, being totally honest, didn't even see my situation as rape in the 24 hours after it happened. Yes, I had bruises in the days after. Yes, I was incredibly sore. I was incredibly traumatized. I was incredibly upset about the whole thing. But I didn't use that word for it. And I think that's because we teach women to feel shame about sexual experiences. We teach them to feel shame about being drunk when it happens, or we treat it like that's relevant or that's an important feature of the story. Because I am so sad that I wasted years of my life feeling like that was something that I brought onto myself or something that wasn't that big of a deal, which I told myself for so long. Like, I remember feeling so confused at 21 and 22, being like, why am I scared of men? Why do I walk down the street and check over my shoulder a million times? Why do I flinch when a man passes me on the train or a man looks at me a little too long? And it wasn't until I started seeing my psychologist and all this stuff came out and I started explaining what it felt like to have my power stripped away from me in that moment and like the crippling fear that it was going to somehow happen to me again that I started to yeah work through it and I'm rambling now because I feel like I've got too many thoughts and feelings to get out and they've all just like vomited into the microphone
0: you're a quite uh, an articulate rambler I must say (laughs) because that wasn't a ramble at all it was like a very articulate and very thoughtful kind of stream of thoughts I wanted I have the quote here where you said, perhaps that's why the language I used to tell the story to family and friends changed as time went on and I had the opportunity for my head to catch up with my body. When I explained that night to my sisters, the first people I ever told, I said he took advantage of me. When I told my girlfriends a month later, I said he forced himself on me. When I told Zara at 24, I said he sexually assaulted me. That, I think, is one of the most powerful lines I've taken from this piece. And I don't actually think I've told you that, but I remember having a conversation with my mom about this essay when she had read the book and I was saying, I was really blown away by that line because I think think it just says so much about rape culture and I think it says so much about how we are desperate not to kind of label things in a way that might offend a man or label something in a way that might, I don't know, acknowledge our own trauma. I want to know how long it took you to accept that label of what actually happened.
1: I think it took seeing a psychologist. I think it took laying out the story for her in 2017 and telling her how it actually happened in all the horrible details, which were details that I had only told Mitch. I didn't want to tell my sisters. I'd only told Mitch because, I don't know, I I just trusted him so much and I didn't feel like he would be as traumatised by those details as what my own family were. And I think my psychologist gave me permission to do that. She heard the story and she got upset with me. And I think that was really important, like telling someone what I'd been through and her mirroring back to me that that's awful, that that's a really shitty thing and that's really hurtful and really traumatizing and validating how I then felt about myself and my place in the world for years afterwards That was like a green light. It was like, yes, you are allowed to feel how you feel. You are allowed to talk about this as assault, not as bad sexual experience. And so long I spent penning it down as a bad sexual experience. Like, you know, when people, you know, when friends would ask juvenile questions when you're younger, be like, how many people have you slept with? I realized somewhere along the line that I would tell them how many people I'd slept with, but I'd never include him. And I think when I told my psychologist that, she's like, you've always known, like you've always known on some level that what he did to you was rape you. But I don't think it was until I came into myself and I grew up a little bit and I found myself that I was really willing to put that label on it and live with that. I didn't want to be and I still don't want to be. And it's one of the reasons I'm not going to talk about this again after this interview. I don't want to be that girl that was sexually assaulted because this happened to me years ago for 10 or 20 minutes and it doesn't define me and it doesn't define my story or what I stand for like yes it is one aspect of my life and I want women to feel seen and feel heard and men if they are victims of this as well and survivors of this as well but I don't want to become that girl who was reduced to just this experience because it was a really shitty traumatic experience and I am so much more than just this one thing.
0: We went back and forth on where we were going to put this story in the book, like where it was going to fit. And we decided that the last essay was the perfect spot for it. And I think it is one of the best decisions that we made. Why Why was it running last, the last thing that people will basically read in this book, the best decision for you?
1: I think because I don't want people to make judgments on my life based on that one story alone. Like... Yes, that shaped a lot of how I think and feel about the world and it certainly helped my feminism and made me more of a feminist and a more vocal feminist because that experience happened to me. But it's also not the whole story. Like, life is so full of ups and downs and black and white and colour and shades of grey that I didn't want people to read that story early on and then have the rest of my chapters coloured by it or tainted by it. And I don't want people to think of me now or hear Monday's episode and be listening to me speaking and thinking she was the girl who had this happen to her and reduce me to that. This was one chapter, literally one chapter of my life, and there are so many other chapters, and some of those chapters are brilliant and beautiful and wonderful. And that's the other thing I want people to know, that if this happens to you and you are struggling and you feel like shit and you feel worthless, which is something I felt for so long, There is so much goodness left in life and there are so many wonderful things that are going to happen to you and that you can realise and you can achieve if you seek help and if you validate your own story and if you use the terms that you are more than welcome to use to describe that experience, which wasn't a bad sexual experience, it was rape or it was sexual assault. I would just hate to ever become the face of this because there are so many faces and this is not a rare story. And that's what's baffling about it, that I I feel like, and it's been such an anxiety for me releasing this into the world. I feel like I've got this new face or something that everyone's going to look at and point as if it's the rarest thing ever. It's such an odd experience, but we know it's not like, I know I've got best friends who are listening to this, who will be nodding their head and going, yes, me too. That happened to me. So if anything, I want people to know it's part of my story, but not the whole story, like so, so far from the whole story. I mean, I guess that's what I wanted to
0: ask you. We are recording this. It is 4.30 p.m. on The Dot on Monday, the 31st of August. It is the day before, hours before this book hits the shelves. And I guess it's the last day that the story belongs to you and those closest to you. Tomorrow, uh, the story is the world, I guess. And I want to know right now how you feel right now waiting for the world to read it.
1: I think I feel ready now. I think it's been a real roller coaster writing this book and this is an essay I wrote over 12 months ago and just waiting, like the waiting game has been truly bizarre and I have kind of like waited in my apartment. That's the other thing, like I haven't been able to get out, I haven't been able to distract myself. This story has been playing on my mind for so long that it's going to be out there and people are going to be reading it and people are going to be making judgments based off of it. But writing this story also made me tell my family, my entire family, what happened to me. And I'll always be grateful for that because I told some people like my sisters, like you, like Mitch, like my best friends. But I hadn't told my mom and my dad. And I'm happy that this story has done that for me. And I'm happy that it made me have tough conversations because those are really important. And it's okay. Like, I'm okay for this to be out there now. I just I just want to help someone I want someone listening to this to think I'm not an idiot I'm not ashamed anymore of that happening and I've held on to it for so long it's been something that I've kept secret for so long that I just want to release it like I just want to feel free from it now it's been seven years and my life is so great and I have so much goodness I don't want to feel shackled by this and I almost refuse to feel shackled by it And so I just want it to be out there and to kind of hold my head up and not feel any of the things that man wanted to make me feel that night. Like I refuse, I completely reject to feel that way. And I'm proud of myself. Like I'm really proud of myself that this story's in there and that I'm going to share it because it's not easy and I'm really scared. But I also think like it's the right thing to do and it's a generous thing to do. And I want to be a generous person in life.
0: It is a very generous thing to do. Like it is the most generous thing I think you can ever do. And I think the thing is, Mish, like you share this story with the world and I know the conversation we've had back and forth is like, well, what the fuck do I do now? This story is not mine. This story is owned by the world. And I know that in the last few weeks in particular, this is something that you've kind of tried to get your head around, what you do when other people own your story too. But what if other people don't own the story, other people know the story so that they can carry it with you? maybe that's what's going to free you and the fact that the community that are going to hear this story are going to be able to carry it with you.
1: Yeah, I think so. I think that's a really nice way to put it. And I think what I've found through this podcast is a community of like such kick-ass women who just push back on that shame. And I love that. Like, I think when we called this podcast Shameless, we were talking about Not feeling shame for loving fucking the bachelor and married at first sight. We were not talking about things like this. And I don't think you and I ever saw Shameless going in the direction it has, but I'm happy it has because it's connected us with women and men and non-binary people and gender fluid people who are incredible and reject that shame as much as we do.
0: How do you think 19 year old you would consider this version of
1: you sitting here (laughs) with me sharing this story? I think she'd be really surprised, really surprised, because 19-year-old me was not a happy, lively me, and I'm happy that I found myself, even if it was through this awful experience, I'm happy that I found a way through it, I'm happy that I am where I am today, like, I'm, I'm really, I love my life, and I'm so happy to be here and be having this conversation. I think the last five words of the
0: book, I think I counted, the last five words of the book are some of the best. I'm not going to read them out now because I want people to read the essay. And don't I spoil want the whole book. To... <laughs> no, but I also don't want them to, the ending of that story is very powerful and very beautiful and I want them to read it. With all of this in mind, what is success to you?
1: <laughs> is um, this the one question you forgot to
0: prep for? I should
1: have thought about this. And I think my, my definition of success changes every month, first of all. Like sometimes we get someone yeah. in this podcast, they say their definition of success and I just adopt it as if it's my own and I came up with it myself. My definition of success is using my voice, using my voice to stand up for what I believe in, using my voice to share my opinions with the world, using my voice to show up and show up and show up and not feel like I need to shut up. I know a lot of people want women to not be loud in this world, but I am a loud woman. (laughs) I'm a passionate woman. And success is embracing those things, not pushing back on it.
0: Well, thank you. (laughs) I
1: am going to cry. I know we always do this at the end of these (laughs)
0: chats sometimes, but I am so fucking proud of you. I I think what you've done is so incredible because I know having watched and been by your side for the last sort of year and a half – how much work you put in to being able to share this story so much fucking work this essay was rewritten what five or six times. (laughs) times so many times and I know you've terrified I know the last few weeks have been hard but there is no doubt that this has been one of the most generous and kind things you could ever give the world so if it's just that surely that's success in and of itself Hey.
1: Thank you. Mm-hmm. I love you. And I should give you a compliment because you made a before that I don't give you enough. Um, your compliment <laughs> I was the joking. Day, <laughs> yeah, I let's to, get out of here. I need to lighten the mood. I'm like sweating under my jumper. Your compliment for the day is that you have a wonderful <laughs> smile. It's <laughs> Ari Donald. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>
0: Thank you so much for listening to this in conversation episode. This very very special in conversation episode of Shameless with my beautiful beautiful friend Michelle Andrews. There was there was a lot in that chat and I am so fucking blown away by how much she has decided to share with all of us because she absolutely did not have to share that and I know I know how hard it was for her to share. A really quick and important note from me just before I go. I have no doubt that you all want to message Michelle straight away after this. I mean, it's, of course, your number one instinct. But if I could ask one thing, it's that you refrain as much as you can from inundating her with messages. As you can imagine, it took a heap for her to come on here and tell her story and her mental health is in a really great place. I just worry that she will drown under the wealth of messages people may want to send her following this, please. So again, please, if I can plead you to refrain from doing that, I would love you so, so much. If you do need help, please, can I encourage you to call 1-800-RESPECT. That is 1-800-RESPECT if this conversation brought up issues for you or if you know someone who might need help, 1-800-RESPECT is the number. Thank you so much again, guys, and we will be back as always in your ears on Monday.
1: Oh, hi. It's Annabelle Lee and Louis Hansen here. We are your hosts of Everybody Has a Secret. Woo! Woo! We are here essentially just to let you know that we drop episodes every week. Now, every damn Friday morning, we are in your ears. That is so exciting. What a (laughs) time to be in your ear holes. So essentially, each episode, we unpack the real-life secrets of our listeners. So this is for everyone who loves, you know, just a little bit of gossip in -hmm. their lives, which, let's be real, Annabelle, is all of us. It's absolutely all of us. Don't lie. You all love gossip. So if you want to listen to our show, please do head to your favourite podcast app and listen now. See you there. Bye.